You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, we're reading from Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 18. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, the holy, the holy, holy to the Lord, excuse me. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rest and was refreshed. And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, we want to say welcome. Thank you for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you enjoy yourselves this morning with us as we get into the word. So like Nate said, we've been working through the book of Exodus all year long. We're going to continue our march through the book of Exodus this morning as chapter number 31 closes. And as you just heard, the Lord writes with the very finger of God and the tablets of the testimony are given to Moses. But he gives a a final command, this kind of final observation that he is calling Moses to speak to the children of Israel about the principle of Sabbath. And so we're going to jump into that. But before we do, what I'd love to, to do is pray for us Ask the Lord to speak to us through his word as he's promised to do. If you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Father, we're so very grateful that your word has been provided for us and to us. Lord, we are not left to our own wisdom. And we're grateful because we know that that would in the end, lead us to our own demise. But instead, you have revealed yourself. And in that, we rejoice this morning. We submit ourselves now to your word. We thank you for the privilege that we get to both sing to you. And now we ask, Holy Spirit, would you incline our hearts to submit to you? Not just in the reading, but in the hearing of your word and applying of your word. God, you know each of us, you know our needs, you know our proclivities, and so we ask Holy Spirit, minister to us, to each of us as we have that need. Speak to us uniquely, and also we ask, my God, that our hearts would be fertile ground for your word, the seed of your word, to produce a 30, 60, and 100-fold harvest, and that, my God, we would be able to rejoice We trust you and we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So I don't think it's coincidental that 
we are following up last week's sermon with the content of this week's sermon and that they are obviously connected. So last week, if you weren't here, uh, you could check out the podcast and get kind of the full uh, breadth of the topic. But last week, God told Moses at the beginning of chapter 31 that he had set apart a, a man named Aholiab that would be the chief architect for the tabernacle, the courts, the Ark of the Covenant. He would be the one to build all of uh, the things that God had set out. And then he also set forward another man and that would be a helper and said that all the men would be able to come along and put their hands to labor to build the things that God had designed. And I mentioned this last week, but I think it's important to mention again, we can't think that these blueprints would be something akin to what I would build in my own backyard. You know, if I set out and said, hey, I'm going to build a 14 by 16 shed, and then it ended up being more like 13.6 by 17.2, and I would say, good enough, uh, and just kind of go on, because whatever, right? I just, you know, just want to save a little extra money, and it's good to me, and it looks good. All right, nice. At least it's not an eyesore. That's not what we're talking about here. God has meticulously designed the tabernacle. He's meticulously laid out his dimensions. And then over and over, he tells Moses, be sure, Moses, that you design this according to the pattern I've shown you on this mountain. So this is going to be what we would consider, I would think, a very arduous task, not just because of the nature of the work itself, but remember that where their building is in the middle of the wilderness, so it's not like they have the ability to go to Lowe's. You know, let's go get some more material. It's not how it works, okay? They're not just getting it shipped to their house or anything of that nature. Amazon doesn't exist out in the you know Mesopotamian desert. Instead, they're having to do all of this as they wander, as they are nomadic as a people. And directly after this command that God calls them to labor, he then says, and above all, I command you to rest. Above all, keep my Sabbaths. So this... Work and rest, labor and rest is all throughout the scriptures given by God to his people as a pattern that they should follow. And, and this is fundamental. He says, God calls the children of Israel to work, but ultimately that work fundamentally has to be rooted in the understanding that God is the one who really wills and works in us for his good pleasure. In other words, all labor that doesn't rest in the sufficiency and the perfection of God's labor will be in vain. That's the idea. You see this throughout the scriptures. Proverbs 16 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. In other words, recognize that God's the one who does the work and then your work will be meaningful, established. It'll last, right? Yet the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 where he has his dream interpreted by the prophet Daniel and then only one year later fulfills that dream when he stands out and looks at all of Babylon and says, look at this great kingdom that I myself have built with my own hands by my power and my might and my majesty. I'm the king, truly the king of kings. And then an angel speaks from heaven and says, this day, King Nebuchadnezzar, you will become like a beast of the earth. And your claws will basically, you will graze the grass and you will humble yourself until the time comes when I allow you to speak again like a man. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar basically is exiled out of his own kingdom until he cries out and says, there is only one true God, the most high, and I humble myself. Now, what's the big rub here? Nebuchadnezzar was praising the work of his own hands and God had, takes issue with labor 
that it does not recognize his work. God takes issue with work that doesn't recognize the true builder. That's the idea. It's said on something like this. If God were to say it in the commentaries, it may sound like Israel, even though I've told you to build me a house to dwell in, you cannot build me a house to dwell in unless I build it. Something like that. Israel, even though I've shown you the sacrificial system, a way that you can approach my holy throne, you cannot approach my holy throne on your own. If you don't do this by my power, you're just killing animals in the desert. If you don't build this thing according to my power and my strength, you're just building a tent of badger skin in the wilderness. And maybe at the height of it, it's something like this. Israel, you cannot retain your status in the Garden of Eden without me. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, the cherubim angel is set at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. No one can come back in. And who can command that cherubim angel to receive anyone back in except the one who commanded him to stand there in the first place? That's the idea. And God wants a dwelling place with man again. But he's telling Israel here, if you don't observe my Sabbaths, or in other words, if you don't acknowledge that it's my work, Exodus chapter 31, he says it like this in verse 13, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, not the blood of bulls or goats, not the Holy of Holies or Ark of the Covenant, not the curtain, not the table of the bread of presence, not the lampstand. I, the Lord, sanctify you, and the Sabbath is meant to teach that. God calls us to labor alongside him according to his will, but the nature of our labor must be done in faith that God is the ultimate builder and that is the Sabbath sign. That's what it's all about. Rest so that you might know that I build. You look back at all your work and recognize that I am the great builder. Israel was to rest on one day. I told the nine o'clock service, but I don't want you to think that's not you know, God was commanding them to have Sunday night in America, you know, watch some NFL football, kick back on the recliner, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what, typically what we do on a Sunday. No, he says a solemn day of rest to do what? To reflect on the God who created them and the God who redeemed them. That was the call to the children of Israel. And if you're a note taker, these are three principles that you can write down. What were the principles of Sabbath? Well, one, Sabbath is about God informing the children of Israel's mind to the truth. Remember, they are coming out of Egypt where they had been misinformed. You know, we live in a day of misinformation and disinformation. There is no worse disinformation than the Egyptian evil Pharaoh who had taught the children of Israel about a pantheon of gods that were evil demons. And now God says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. Or how about this? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. I am the one true God, and I redeem you. Sabbath is about a reflection that there's one God who created Israel, there's one God who redeemed Israel. And if you think about what it means to reflect on that, there will be steps that happen after that. Like, for instance, if God created you, then he commands you. Right? The same God who made you can call you to something, command you, in fact, to something. If God, in fact, redeemed you and brought you out of the house of slavery and that was the only way, then that means that perhaps you and I can't redeem ourselves. 
Not perhaps that's the story. You can't redeem yourself. You have to have a God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm who lays the taskmaster Pharaoh low so that you can be brought out. And then Sabbath is about transforming the heart. So it starts in the truth about who God is and what he's done. And then it begins to move into the heart, our affections, worship and rejoicing. If you've ever wondered why Jesus being asked what the greatest commandment was, his response was to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But if you remember, that's not the whole line that Jesus gave because that's not exactly how that text goes. It says something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's truth. The word the Jews used for this line was the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear. Hear this first. There's one true God, not the pantheon of gods, not the many gods, not the false gods of Egypt, but there's one true God who's called you out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. He created you. He called you. And you should what? Then it the seed of affections. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why did Jesus say that? Well, because then that leads inevitably to the third, which is Sabbath is about conforming your will. See, you read the commandments and we think many of us wrongly have thought, let's read the old covenant and that's, that's where God was works-based, but then you get to the New Testament and he becomes grace-based. Oh no. Although in the old covenant, you find Israelites who thought that they could earn their salvation and you found in the new covenant, Israelites and Gentiles who thought they could earn their salvation. God has been consistent throughout that he is the one who is mighty to save. It's always been this way. And even here you see that it's the affections that comes from the truth of God that end up leading to the conformation of the will. In other words, obedience and faith, we act a different way. So I want to point out something to you, though, that's kind of odd. You probably didn't even think of it at face value, but it's a very odd truth. Why is it that we have to be commanded to rest? You thought about this? Like, I don't know about you, but if I could take a nap every day, no one would have to write me a, you know, a certified letter to make that happen. I want to. Why do we have to be commanded to rest by God? What's the scoop? What's the skinny here? And I, the best that I've come up with is something like this. The reason that you and I struggle to rest is because internally, we are acutely aware that something is off about the universe, about us, about things. And because it's off, it needs our attention to try and make sure that whatever's messed up, chaotic about this world doesn't break out against us. It needs something to come in and hedge our boundaries around us. Some of you may have friends. Maybe you are this mom in the room. I tried to euphemistically figure out a way to describe this mom, but a mom who's a little more concerned than other moms. Maybe you are that mom. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Because I actually really sympathize with this mom as I was working on this sermon. And here's why. Because if we were to, I mean, really reflect and think about all of the things that could potentially go wrong by the end of this sermon, it would freak us out. Like if we really reflected on how many things could go wrong by the end of this sentence, that would really change our lives. It would kind of make us go crazy a little bit. There is so much that is unpredictable. Seen this, if you turn on the news, you know, 
People's lives change with one phone call from the doctor. People's lives change with one wrong decision in a car. You know, what about if you just built your house in Florida and all of a sudden here comes a big storm, you know? And the truth is not even the, quote, experts know. It's like, well, where is this storm going to go? And then we go to our chief meteorologist and he's like, well, here's the cone of uncertainty. It's like, oh, so it could hit roughly anywhere in North America. Thanks for that, Bill. You know, and then you go back to you. We don't know. And yet that's, we're talking about life-changing stuff. And my sense is that that's why human beings have to be commanded to rest. Because even though we would love it and we want to rest, something nags at us that if you just let your eyes close, it could all go badly. If you just let your guard down, now, you, especially guys in the room that are kind of laughing when I mention the mom who's a little more worried, well, you have a different version of this. It's why you take every opportunity for extra hours you can. Why? Because that represents something. It represents if I can have a little bit more cash in my account, if I have, it just, it's a little bit more margin for me to be freed up. The interesting thing is we're never really freed up because we keep taking those opportunities. We have some future day that we're going to be freed up to be restful. But in reality, if we just reflected on that for, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, you would admit that you don't even know if tomorrow when the market opens, it all goes down. You don't know. I don't know. And that don't know uncertainty really nags at us. You know, it's why many of us, you know, we got not just like a, a gun case that's full and I'm all for that, go rock on. Or you also got, you know, your, your uh, storable food, your dry storable food. Because you don't know, you're like, hey, I'm just ready for any possible scenario. And then like you read Revelation and I don't know if you're ready for every possible scenario. I've seen some things in there that <laughs> I'm not sure how you, how you do it. <laughs> Psalm 127, this is one of what the... Bible calls the Psalms of Ascent. This is where the high priest, as he's going up on the Sabbath, there's 14 Psalms and 14 steps up the temple. He would take a step and recite this Psalm. And then he'd take a second step and he would recite another Psalm. And from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, he would recite these Psalms of Ascent. You think about who can ascend the hill of the Lord. This is that idea. He's, he's reciting these. It's not coincidentally, this would have been on the seventh step, seventh day. And he says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And there's two parts to this psalm. One is kind of intense. He says, you can work really hard to build. Think about the children of Israel here. Unless the Lord builds the tabernacle, everything you do will be vanity. Or for the Christian, how about this? Unless the Lord's building you, every righteous act you do will be wood, hay, or straw. That's kind of intense. How about this one? Unless the Lord's the one who watches over the city, you can stay awake all night and the marauders will come. Unless the Lord protect us from the evil one, you can pray all night. But the Lord is the one who has to answer. So that's the intense side. But it's the last lines that you should really lean into. So what is the answer? God doesn't give to his children anxious toil. He gives them sleep or rest. 
So why do I read that psalm? Well, because Sabbath is not merely a command. Sabbath is a gift from a God who loves us. He commands us to be obedient to it because it's important, and he gifts it to us because he loves us. Both of those things are true. He gives you rest and sleep. He gives you peace and not anxiety. And then, of course, he commands you to be obedient. Now, I want to ask a second question. Should Christians observe the Sabbath? You know, is it a sin to not? What should we do with this as New Testament believers? I think it's impossible to say that the Sabbath is entirely ceremonial. And the reason for that is because God did not merely speak about the Sabbath alongside certain ceremonial laws. He actually put it in the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and then continues to say things like, it's a covenant forever, a sign with my people. Now, on the other hand, I think it's impossible to say that the Sabbath is to be kept by us in the same manner that it was commanded in the Old Testament because the New Testament directly addresses this. For instance, there are a few more contentious dialogues that Jesus has with the Pharisees or the Jews than around the subject of Sabbath. If you're reading your New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and you see, and it was the Sabbath day, get buckled up for an argument. Jesus is doing that on purpose. Like Jesus didn't say, well, I didn't get to the healings in the first six days. I guess I'll do it on the Sabbath. No, he's, a, he's purposefully healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus always picks the right fights. We have to assume why. Why, what, why is he doing this? It's not accidental. It's not incidental. It's providential. He wants to do it. A few of the things that Jesus was charged with. He was charged with breaking the Sabbath for doing things like picking corn in the grain fields alongside his disciples and eating on the Sabbath. Um, For healing on the Sabbath, this was a big one. Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath and they would say, well, why didn't you just heal yesterday? Like, why you gotta do it now? You're breaking the Sabbath by healing. He was charged with blaspheming on this day um, because of these things. And Jesus didn't shy away from that. He actually pushed back against them. He said things like this, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he said, I have authority over the Sabbath. He went on to say things like the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He also criticized the hypocrisy of the Jews by saying, if you have a sheep and he falls into a pit, won't you save that sheep on the Sabbath day? And yet you don't want me to heal this man who's been sick for years, who is more valuable. Now, it seems clear that Jesus is up to something here. You have to kind of understand certain things about Sabbath keeping at that time. And even today, maybe you've seen this on uh, maybe a news article or a video, or maybe if you've ever been to Israel or seen something like this. An example of this is they have things like uh, Sabbath elevators for Orthodox Jews. In a Sabbath elevator, they turn all of the buttons off. It stops at every floor. And the reason for that is because for you to push the button to your floor would be work. So if you're, you know, penthouse sweeten on the Sabbath, buckle up. You're going to get, you're going to every floor to get up there. And that sounds kind of funny to us, but that is the stringency of rules on the Sabbath that were derived from the text like the one we read this morning. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing here is exactly what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said things like, in, in the, with the purpose of giving more clarity and fulfillment to what 
God's original intent of the commandments were, Jesus said things like, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Ah, so he's getting at the heart of the commandment. He goes on to say things like, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, if you've had anger in your heart towards your brother, you have already murdered. Once again, getting to the heart. With that pattern, we have to assume that Jesus is getting to the heart of the Sabbath in these interactions with the Jews. We see that with Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, interpreting this. Paul says this to the church at Colossae. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I'm going to read that line again. These, including Sabbath, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. By the way, this is where you get the heavenly shadows title. Okay, just throwing that out there. Christ is the substance. What we're reading here is the shadow to lead to the substance. So, okay, that sounds fine and good, Court, but what does that mean practically? In your Bible, what you'll have is, uh, and this is a really great tool, but we just have to remind ourselves this was not in the original manuscripts. We have chapters and verses. So I can say things like turn to chapter 11 in Matthew 25 through 28. That's what we're going to read next. And that's really easy and convenient for us to get there. The problem with that is at times we think that when we've changed chapters, we've changed context, we've changed, and it's not perfect. Sometimes you're going to a new chapter, but it's a similar conversation. An example of this might be John 15, 16, and 17 is one sitting, Jesus speaking. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one sitting, Jesus speaking. And if you think that going to chapter 6, all of a sudden you're going to a new sermon from Jesus, that's not the fact. This is one of those moments where Matthew chapter 11 is immediately succeeded by an argument about Sabbath. And I think that there's a reason for that. So let's read Matthew 11, 25 through 28. Very popular, familiar portion of scripture. You're going to know it when I start to read the main verse. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So Jesus is praying, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, before I read the next line, what is the context? Eternal life, salvation, authority to give eternal life has been given to the Son to reveal what? Who the Father is because only the Son truly knows. And it's in that knowledge of God that eternal life exists. All of this is by faith. And Jesus is saying that he has the authority, the to offer eternal life. Now I want you to think about that in relation to what we've read over and over again in Exodus, that God's intention is that he would have a dwelling place to be with his people, that they may know that he is the Lord. He wants them to know him. Jesus said, I've been given authority to reveal that you might know God. And then John chapter 17, which is eternal life to know God. And I'm going to extend that to others. So all of this is framed in eternal life. And then he's going to make this invitation. Now walk with me on this. So what's the invitation to eternal life, right? 
Listen to how he does it. Verse 28. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Other translations say, I'll give you rest for your souls. Remember earlier, I talked about why we need to be commanded to rest because there's something in our soul that is so constantly reeling, active, acknowledging that something's broken and wrong and we got to give attention to it. And here Jesus says, I'm not going to give you just rest from your earthly Pharaoh. I'm going to give you rest for your soul because I'm going to reveal to you the father. I'm going to give you rest from your works. I'm going to give you rest from trying to earn your salvation, which cannot be earned. I'm going to give you rest from trying to atone for yourself when you cannot atone. I'm going to give you rest from personal sacrifice in the hopes of being someone or gaining or attaining something that you can't do on your own because I'm going to do it. And in that sense, he will give us real rest, which is eternal life. That's the substance of Sabbath. God says, I'm going to give you a sign so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Jesus comes and says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Not the promised land where there still will be Philistines who come in and try to take over. No, I'll give you real rest for your souls. In me, you'll have eternal life. That's the big idea of Sabbath. You see, Jesus' words when he talks about Sabbath are indicating a shift. The entirety of the Old Testament, Old Covenant system is coming to an end. In chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus says to the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here. And he's speaking of himself. In other words, he is the fulfillment and the inauguration of a new age. In this age, Christ is the fulfillment of our Sabbath rest When we come to him by faith, we are given not just rest from our earthly toil, but we're given rest from our spiritual toil, our works. And we're entering into the joy of what it means to be at peace with God forever. And so we, in one sense, of course, we must observe the Sabbath. But what's the heart of the Sabbath? It is faith in the Son of God who offers you complete peace and rest from your works. Or as the book of Hebrews says, we rest from our work just as God rested from his on the seventh day. That's what it means. Now I have to mention this before I move on towards the end here. And that is, is there anything that we should consider about the Sabbath day, like one rest day in seven that, that we should still look to apply? And I would say, yes, I think there's great indication of this in the New Testament. Here's a few examples. The book of Acts says, the believers, quote, gathered together on the first day of the week as was their custom. And what did they do? Break bread worshiped, were generous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, I want you to, on the first day of the week, set aside your gift when you gather so that I can bring it to Jerusalem. He was assuming the Corinthians gathered on the first day of the week and they would send that gift to Jerusalem after they brought it. And then lastly, the book of Revelations, the book of Revelation starts with John saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I saw a vision. So the entirety of John's revelatory visions are given to him on what? When he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And we know the Lord's day had moved from Saturday, the seventh day week to the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? Because Christ was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday. And why would that be important? Why did that ever happen? You probably have heard a lot of reasons why for this, but it's actually very simple. It's because they were speaking to the fulfillment of Christ's 
sacrifice and resurrection, God accepting the son as that perfect sacrifice. So they worshiped on now the Lord's day, the first day of the week, or as the Israelites would have known it as the first fruits of the week on a sun Sunday. Now I have to ask this question too, which I'm not sure if you've seen or thought about, but why is this text so severe with its penalty about Sabbath? You kept, did you start asking that yet? I told the nine o'clock service story about my kids. They're both very different. My daughter will sleep much like her mother until you wake her up. My son would not sleep unless you put him to sleep. And he will tell you, it doesn't matter if you know he's exhausted. If you, are you tired? Nope. You know, he'll stay awake as long as he possibly can. And I was joking with the nine o'clock because I said, you know, when I say I have to put my son to sleep, I don't mean like he either goes to sleep or I put him to the long sleep. And that's what you see in Exodus 31, you know? It's like, you're either going to rest or you're really going to rest. So what's going on here? Well, if we consider the shadows and the substance of the Old and New Testaments, this makes total sense, okay? Adam's works in the garden resulted in death. Israel's works in the wilderness resulted in death. They did not believe God's promise that they could go into the promised land and defeat the giants. So what did they do? They wandered for 40 years and an entire generation died because of their lack of faith and they believed too much in their own wisdom, their own works or inability to work. The danger of works-based righteousness and self-salvation is so severe that God required the death penalty for it. And that should make lots of sense because it was the lie of the serpent to Adam that if he tried, if he did the thing he ought not do, he would not surely die like God said, and yet he would surely die. So God is laying out for the children of Israel that there are some acts that are so corporately poisonous that swift punishment has to be the answer. There's no other way. So if Sabbath rest is truly responding in faith to the saving work of Christ on the cross, we have to come to the conclusion, like the writer of Hebrews, that to neglect salvation is a life or death issue. That's what Sabbath was trying to communicate, that when the true Sabbath rest arrives, we should say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if Christ calls to you, do not harden your heart against him, but receive the gift that he offers, true rest. And that every day, Christian, even if we have already received Christ, that we too, every day, respond to Jesus in faith. And we don't reject him. Because what he's offering to us, only he can offer, we desperately need, and we can't accomplish ourselves. That's the principle of Sabbath rest. And every ideology and religion that promotes salvation by works is ultimately a deadly and satanic ideology. It does not produce life. Anyone who tells you that you could earn anything apart from what's been earned for you by Christ alone is only offering to you death and poison. There are two dangerous works-based salvation categories, and I want to just briefly work through them. Because the truth is, we get together on Sabbath, right? We get together on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, and we worship together. But here's what I know, whether... I really know you or not. And that is all week long, the enemy has sought to promote and preach to you self-salvation techniques. Um, And he does so according to that which you and I have proclivities 
toward believing. That's why there's categories. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I have, my children are both different. Um, and yet they're different in the same kind of ways. Just like you and I are different, and yet we're different in the same kind of ways. For instance, you may like chocolate ice cream, another may like strawberry, another may like vanilla, but we all need to eat. We're different in the same type of ways. These categories look something like this. The, false re, the falsely religious or the truly irreligious. The falsely religious or the truly irreligious. The falsely religious is a workspace salvation technique. And it manifests itself something like this. Some of you may be familiar with it. The religious zealot. He's the one who knows all the right answers, uh, is not only intent on being righteous himself, but this is a key factor in the religious zealot. He is really intent on you being righteous in the same manner that he sees it. He may have already a direct message you on Facebook about this, on how you need to be righteous, or perhaps in our day and age, he was just passive aggressive and posted about you. Or she posted about you and you know that it's about you and she knows that it's about you and all your friends know, but nobody talks about it. And yet still, this the religious zealot is confident. Now here's, an, there's another falsely religious person that we don't talk about as often. And that's the good old boy Christian. And he says something like, well, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't really do the whole church thing, but I love Jesus. And, you know, I'm just trying to do my best and it'll all work out in the end because God knows my heart. I'm just trying to do my best and doing my thing. And, and here's why I call that these both are the falsely religious person, because both are underestimating the holiness of God and his requirement. The religious zealot, you may think that they really take God's holiness seriously, but if they really took God's holiness seriously, they'd have, they would have no business trying to pretend like they could attain it. You see, they take it only as serious as they, as they feel necessary that they might be able to attain it for their own glory. And similarly so, the religious good old boy doesn't take God's holiness seriously. He thinks that God is just like him. Kind of easy going. Yeah, well, it's all good. Not a big deal. Don't worry about it, bubba. That that's how God is. Now, the truly irreligious is working in an opposite direction. They, they eliminate God altogether, but the aim's still the same. The truly irreligious person thinks that they can work hard enough to build their own kingdom. We don't, I don't need God. I can just build my own utopia and I'll build it. The problem that they have is that they're not deluded about atonement. They're deluded about who can actually build a kingdom that lasts. They're deluded into believing that their sandcastle won't just be demolished by high tide that somehow they could ascend and build a kingdom that rivals the true king. See, we, we seem to think that these people are on different wavelengths, but in reality, they're on the same wavelength of delusion, and it's ultimately placing themselves in the seat of God. And friends, the reason that I mention it to you is not so that you can laugh and say, ha ha, how deluded they are. No, friends, that's what's after you every week. That's the sermon that's preached to you every week multiple times a week. And so what do we do whenever we get here to combat that? Well, I'll close with this thought. Resting gives room for rejoicing. Every Christmas, parents, you're going to probably jive with this. Morgan and I try to do our best to convince our kids to slow down after each present and just like, give a cursory glance to what they got. If, you, if you've done this with your kids, you already know what I'm talking about. So they open that first present, they're like, sweet, and then the next one that's wrapped. 
set it over here. It doesn't matter what it is, set it over here, you know. And we're trying to slow that down and say, hey, you know, did you say thank you to Cece? Do you know what you got? Or for me, I'm like, do you know how long it took to build that? <laughs> you see those batteries that daddy scotch taped to that? that they, didn't, they were not included, okay? I found that out last night. What we're really trying to do is give them enough time, enough space to reflect so that they can actually rejoice in the gift that's right before them, right? That's the idea. That's what Sabbath is. Sabbath is the space, the time that you can sit back to to actually reflect and rejoice in all of the goodness that God has to offer all that he's done and all that he's promised to do, all that he's doing currently that you and I just haven't seen. The parts of the present that you haven't even opened. You guys know what I'm talking about where you have to ask, tell your kid, well, keep going. There's still more down there. That's what Sabbath is. It's God saying, well, don't just move on. There's still more depth down there. And so I want to leave you with these things that we should rest and rejoice in this morning. Number one is rest and rejoice in the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to you by faith. All week long, you have had subtle and not so subtle reminders from the enemy about how broken and sinful you are. You may not even know that's where that came from, but it did. Nothing should cause you to rejoice more than the fact that God has told you in his word, he has found it reasonable to account the perfect righteousness of Christ to you by faith. And that when he sees you, he sees Christ. Let it sink in. Number two, rest and rejoice in the atoning work of Christ for you on the cross. My guess is that the enemy did not relent. But instead, he may have said something like, I need to remind you that even if you have the righteousness of Christ, someone has to pay for how unrighteous you've been. Someone's got to pay the debt for how sinful you've been. Rejoice, friends. The Bible says that Christ, as he breathed his last on the cross, said, it is finished. He has done it. He bled and died. He took your punishment. And no power of hell, Paul says in Romans 8, can keep you from that love and receiving the reward of his suffering. Number three, rest and rejoice in the promised work of the Spirit in you. Things have not gone how you probably set them out this week, okay, when you planned them. Maybe your year hasn't gone that way. You know, it's October, so all of your New Year's resolutions are now fully kaput, all right? Maybe your life hasn't gone exactly how you panned it out to be. You're not the man or woman you wanted to be. And yet, still, Christ and his spirit dwells within you, even as you wrestle against things within, sin within, and spiritual darkness without. None of it can change the promise that God always finishes what he starts, and he has begun a good work in you. God is not the builder who hasn't, requ- hasn't thought about the cost before he started the project. He paid it in full with no debts, and now he will complete that which he started. You are an unfinished product, no doubt, and no one knows better than the people closest to you. But God is not in the business of leaving loose ends untied. He will finish what he started. Think about that this morning. Finally, rest and rejoice 
in the promised place that God has prepared for you. Some of you were sick this week. You know, our elders got together and we just said, man, we need to begin to pray. We've had more sickness in our church recently, hospitalizations, just crazy things. Uh, in between the two services, a friend just shared with me that there's a surgery upcoming and we didn't know about. Um, some of you were sick this week. Some of you were exhausted this week. Some of you woke up and you were reminded this morning, as I've been preaching, you've been thinking about all the things you have to do at your house, more projects than you have days. Some of you watched the news this week and you're regretting it now because you were just reminded of all of the uncertainties. You were reminded that you don't have any sort of clarity about what in the world is going on in our world. Nothing seems certain. Everything's up in the air. And yet Christ has prepared a place for you. Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, why would I say it? Christians, we do not know what tomorrow will bring and we shouldn't pridefully pretend. But the great tomorrow we are sure about. The great tomorrow is coming and you and I can be as sure about that as the sun will rise tomorrow. We know where we're going. Christ has not left us in the dark about this. In his very own words, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come for you. We will be with our God in his presence and there, there will be life and pleasure forevermore. And so I want to give an invitation. If this morning you are not sure that you trust Christ, or maybe you're certain that you don't, I want to invite you that there is this offer from Jesus that stands today open to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus stands at the ready offering you that which your toil can't give. And he offers it to you, not on the basis of what you have done, what you're currently doing, or what you future think you probably aren't going to be able to accomplish. But on the basis of what he has already accomplished, he offers it to you freely. And for the believer in the room, I want to invite you into the thing that we do every single week. But I pray that it's more deep for you this morning, and that is to rest and rejoice because what Christ has done for you is done. Who Christ is for you is done. He has called you by name. He's called you his own. And he is a, he is a God who finishes what he starts. So if he has called you by name, be assured he will come for you. Let me pray for us. Father, I I thank you that I've had the privilege to speak of an infinitely small portion of just how wonderful the substance of the gospel is. Just who you are and what you've done for us. I thank you for that privilege. I ask now that we would have enough time and space this morning to continue grabbing deeper into the bag of this gift and pulling out more treasures. And that we would rejoice that the songs that we sing, the words that come out of our mouth the rest of this morning would be words of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. I pray for the anxiety that overwhelms, that it would be just washed away in your presence this morning. 
that your words would come to us, God, like they did to Martha. Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Father, help us now to to choose the good portion like Mary and sit at the feet of Jesus. And in so doing, let all of our cares be washed away. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.